With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I've got Terry George with me, great director, writer, but among other things, you directed and wrote uh, Hotel Rwanda. And the, the Promise, which is a love story set during the Armenian Genocide, Probably won't be out till like November. I kind of think it's funny though that essentially you're like the genocide guy. I don't mean to make fun of that. No, like no, I don't no, mean no, to make no, a joke. No. But like Hotel Rwanda was so moving and so important at the same time, and yet you've t- and and it's about such an important historical topic, and you hit it from so many ways uh, in terms of the issue. Mm. But at the same time, it's still a story, and that's how you communicate it. Yeah. So so really, I want to get right to the heart of the matter, which is. A, where do you come from? Like, why, why is suffering and art so interwoven with you? Mm. And B, how do you do it? So those are the kind of the main things I want to oh. cover. So, so who the hell that. are you? I'll answer that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> one word answer to the first question. I'm from Belfast in Ireland. Oh, I couldn't <laughs> tell from your accent. I you're- <laughs> how do you empathize with suffering? I'm from Ireland. I'm Irish. And, um, and, and just to mention, by the way, you're Irish. And you even mentioned in one interview that I've read that, you know, obviously the Rwandan genocide was a, a genocide, but oh. you, you do make some parallels between what happens oh, in yeah. Ireland to, no, to Rwanda. Very much so. I mean, I grew up in Belfast right at the, I was seven, 16 when this phase of the troubles broke out. 1969 was the, it's, it, it sort of rolled from 1966 through 1969. As you were about like 17 yeah. at that time? Yeah, I went, I mean, it was my formative years um, from 69 through till 78. I was deeply embroiled in the, the whole, the troubles there, the war. And it really, and it had, a, it went from classically from a civil rights uprising to a street rebellion to guerrilla warfare till this very, um, focused, uh, not high tech, but very intense war between the IRA and the British um, through that period. Um, and and that, that, for me, was uh, my education. But like you say, 1969 was not only the peak of that, it was the peak of sort of youth revolutions all around, like in France, in the U.S., but in Ireland in particular, because you're dealing with this sort of national uprising right. as well and, and civil yeah. rights and so on. So how did you personally get involved in what was going on? 
Well, we were, I mean, that was the time of, you know, the, the, the uprising in Paris, the civil rights movement in the United States, and what was taking place in Northern Ireland, we saw as part of that worldwide movement um, of people struggling for civil rights. It was basically the Catholic population had felt and were oppressed by a, um, you know, a dictatorship or a, a dominant government that discriminated against uh, the Catholic population. So there was a sense of indignation, but also a sense of um, allegiance with what was taking place in the United States, what was taking place in Europe, you know, and and the the people I grew up with um, just felt invigorated by that and became involved in a civil rights movement. But because of the history of Ireland, that civil rights movement was deeply intertwined with the question of Ireland being divided by the British North and South, you know, that the, that the British had uh, occupied Ireland, had left the southern part and still occupied the North. So there was this thing of civil rights meets this nationalist struggle. And the IRA had been, you know, the dominant, they had actually driven the British out in the South and were still a potent force in the North. So you had a weird mix there of like civil rights movement and guerrilla movement going on. Right, so, but, but you're almost like separating it in terms of like civil rights movement slash, yeah. you know, IRA and youth slash guerrilla yeah. movement. But somehow or other, it all sort of merged together. Like you, you were participating, you weren't just sort of protesting in the streets. What was, what was actually going on in, in your life at that moment? Yeah, well, I, you know, everybody was participating. If you were Catholic and you were from these working class neighborhoods, you were just embroiled in this. Literally, there were, it went from the police force, which was totally dominated by the, the, the unionist Protestant government, attacking those areas. Um, and they, the police force being backed up by sort of loyalist militia and Protestant gangs. And then when the British army came in, in 69, they quickly switched to supporting that establishment. So you, you ended up living in a neighbor, in an area, a neighborhood that was under siege from not just this police force, this sectarian police force, but then by the British army. So you were basically under siege. It was a classic situation of uh, a local population being dominated by an occupation army, as we saw it. And, and so you're there young, angry, your friends are starting to get connected up yeah. to, you know, more active parts of this movement. What was your path through this movement? Because now there's a, there's a long time between 1969 and when you started getting more active in, let's say, other issues in the film industry and so on. Yeah. So, okay, what takes you from 1969 all the way through to Rwanda? Like, what's kind of the artistic path? What's the, you, I know you were a journalist covering these issues. Like, how did you kind of start to translate suffering to story? Well, what took me there, my, my own personal experience in Northern Ireland were, you know, I, I grew up uh, in my, my family were from a working class Catholic neighborhood. My father aspired to be middle class. He had a small auto shop, he fixed cars, he sold secondhand cars. And he moved up into a middle class, predominantly Protestant neighborhood. 
Did they feed him okay? No. As, well, they did before, when, after 69 when the troubles blew up. We were quickly like persecuted. The house was wrecked. The windows were broken. We were driven out of there. And at the same time, the neighborhood where he had come from, which was this very hardcore Catholic IRA neighborhood that was basically under siege from um, a sort of all of East Belfast, which is where we were from, became a, when the troubles broke out, became a really hardcore IRA area. And that, because of the division in, in the society then, was where I had to go to hang out as a kid. I couldn't hang out in the neighborhood where I, where we had our house. Were you picked on, like by other oh, yeah, kids? Yeah, yeah, we could be, you know, I was, like our wall was painted like no Pope here, and I was a Fenian, and I got beaten up in fucking playgrounds and shit like that. Yeah, there was definitely a, fe- a sense that you were not welcome, to, to put it mildly. I just wanna, yeah. I just wanna add that the way you just put it, you were beat up in fucking playgrounds. <laughs> like, yeah. just why playgrounds? Because I remember there was an incident where we went to a couple of times where I went with uh, a cousin and went to a playground and somebody fingered us as like their Fenians, which was the slang for Catholics. And we literally got beat up and chased out of there, you know. Mm-hmm. And what was it? There was all these, you know, these funny incidents you recall from your childhood. I joined this thing called St. John's Ambulance, which was like a volunteer uh, ambulance corps. And when you were a kid, it meant you got to go to like football matches because you were doing first aid and shit like that. You know, you could stand at the sideline or you could go to a cinema as the first aid person. Um, and I went to this cinema one time, uh, the Windsor Cinema on the Woodstock Road. And somebody threw a fucking whole, it's the whole chair of the cinema, like the seat, down at me. And I I thought, I didn't know what I thought. I thought, like, there was some mistake or something like that. And the woman says, you better get out of here. And I said, what? Because you're a Fenian, you know. Can I I ask a naive question? Because I don't really know the answer, so it's totally naive. But... Protestants and Catholics are all Christians, and I know there's a lot of strife yeah. between them, but when you get right down to the core of yeah. what Jesus said, what's, what's yeah, the big but deal? It's, it's, not, it's economics. You have to understand the history of Europe and the history of the British Empire mm-hmm. and the division of it. Like, okay, you know, Henry VIII was a Christian. Right. But he chopped his house wave. 500 so, years ago, though. But that, that legacy, that culture of the division of European society into, you know, the Catholic society and the Protestant, Martin Luther and then Huguenots, that, that's caused as much violence as the Shia-Sunni division yeah. has done today, more so. And it, it crystallized in Northern Ireland because in Ireland, the British used that division as a way to control the country. And, and you know... It's, I know it's 500 years of history, but being Jewish, you know, like, you know, you're dealing with 2,000 years or whatever. It's the legacy of that, and ultimately it ends up in economics. Uh, the Catholic nationalist population in Northern Ireland were the, you know, the underclass, and the, the, um, the Protestant working class population felt as though they were the privileged class. They were the, the shipbuilders, they were the ones that, helped build the British Empire 
they had been empowered by uh, their allegiance to the crown. Um, so, so okay, so so starting from that, then you, this movement is kind of breaking out. What sep- and I know you got into journalism was kind of your first yeah. foray into telling the story of what was happening. Yeah. Um, and what separated you out from, let's say, other journalists who were just simply reporting the news, like this happened here, this happened here, to someone who starts telling stories? What separates out the story from the news? Well, I had a sense when I first came to New York and I worked in, I was a fact checker at New York Magazine and I was freelancing music journalism for Rolling Stone and the Village Voice and stuff like that. But I, I, I had left Ireland just after the, the IRA hunger strike, the Bobby Sands hunger strike, which was quite a unique, um, bizarre event. And not well, just what was happening? Well, basically, what happened was that the IRA prisoners had been, had fought for and had been accorded a sort of prisoner of war status where they were uh, held in, in camps where you know they'd be in a, a compound with tents and so forth and they'd control themselves. Margaret Thatcher decided that this was uh, pandering to terrorists. She took, tried to take this, what they called political or prisoner of war status away and the IRA prisoners went on a hunger strike and I think there were like 80 of them on hunger strike at one point but 10 of them died, most famously or infamously Bobby Sands that you know was the first of the ten to die, and this, um, that 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 particular event, and that whole prison camp which I'd been in. Why were you in it? Because I was arrested by the British Army and charged with like uh, supporting the IRA, and um, so I, I had a sense of this fucking amazingly bizarre and unique place that was. Um, like a crucible for what was going on in Northern Ireland and I wrote a play about it because I didn't there had been a lot of journalism written but I thought nobody's written a play about this that kind of gets inside what took place in the camp but there kind of there was a lot of banal stuff and I wrote a play called The Tunnel and I took it to a guy called Jim Sheridan and who was running the Irish Art Centre uh, on E. West 51st, between 10th and 11th, still there. Um, uh, and Jim took the play and put it on. Um, and it was by off-off-Broadway uh, standards pretty successful. It ran for six months. Wow. Uh, and then Sheridan came to me and said he wanted first he wanted to turn it into a movie, but he wanted to shoot the movie within the theater itself because it was all set within a, a hut in this prison camp. And I got sort of semi-decent reviews, and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure, maybe. And he said to me, famously or infamously, he said, well, I'm going off to do this. Uh, I'm going to write this script about Christy Brown, you know, and maybe shoot this film. And and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, drunken Irish paraplegic, that'll be a fucking big hit. (laughs) And that turned into my left foot. Are you kidding? Yeah. So Jim went off and wrote and directed Daniel Day-Lewis and My Left Foot. And I ran the Irish Art Centre for the next year. I was like the artistic director while he was away. And so did you start to think, oh my gosh, it's, this is accessible to me. 
the, the taking this piece of suffering that had already translated yeah. into a play because the journalism, as you said, was banal. Yeah. And it is possible to turn something horrific into into a movie. No, I never thought of it as like horrific into a movie. I thought that if you want to transmit the emotions that you'd experienced and the passion that people had, you had to find a universal language for that rather than the local politics that bored people yeah. or, or turned them off. So what do you mean by the universal language? Because well, suffering happens in all forms, personal, yeah. political, historical. But I'm not, I'm not interested in suffering. I mean, I am interested in suffering. I'm interested in alleviating it. What I'm most interested in is people who overcome that or deal with it and rise above it. The, the, the capacity to take that suffering and turn it into something good or to challenge evil in a way on a, an ordinary personal level to find, you know, as John, Lennon, John Lennon's movie, or sorry, John Lennon's song, Working Class Hero, Working Class Hero is kind of a, um, it's kind of ironic, but I actually believe in working class heroes, you know, that you can find ordinary people who triumph over extraordinary circumstances. So, so uh, this is kind of a side question, but a lot of people feel you sort of have to hit rock bottom in life to kind of make a move up. Do you feel that there could just be sort of a, a like working class hero is not necessarily a rock bottom, but you could kind of find heroism in, uh, in kind of this just, just general wear and daily wear and tear uh, that society yeah. does. I think there's a moment, there's a chemistry where people find a spark. There's something that ignites them or hits something inside them that triggers greatness in, 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 in a very sort of um, important yet not sort of, uh, I'm struggling here for this, that they they come to greatness through just the moment where there's a tipping moment where they say, I'm going to stand up against something or I'm going to do something. You know, I can't deal with this anymore. Like the great network movie, you know, where, yeah. Um, what does he say? I can't take, uh, yeah, um, not, uh, yeah. I forget the exact quote now. Right. It's famous. <laughs> yeah. I'm mad as hell and I'm I can't mad, take I'm it. I'm mad as hell. I'm not taking it. Yeah. But, uh, but he was mad as hell. You know? Yeah. Well, so, well, so what ignited when, you? What was the moment that ignited you? No, I, I don't think there's, there, you know, there's moments you remember. There, for me, what ignited me was the knowing that I could write drama that people would uh, be, mo be moved by, that they would empathize. Why, why drama? Like what at this point had most influenced you in, from an artistic point of view? Well, I, I, as opposed to writing nonfiction about the politics or the stories or whatever. You know, I, I mean, I, I worked for great journalists. I worked for Pete Hamill, Jimmy Breslin, Peter Maas, um, you know, at New York Magazine. At that time, I, when I was a fact checker on their research, I worked for the best. But I understood that drama, if you get drama right, and mostly through movies, that if you can get drama right, it transcends journalism. It takes people 
inside a situation that they can never experience. And and the reason for that was films like, you know, uh, Schindler's List, Reds, Missing, um, you know, even Apocalypse Now, great political movies that you, when you, you feel like you've, Europe become part of that situation or and it's interesting because mm. like Schindler's List is a great example mm. it's a political movie but obviously even like Hitler is never seen or mentioned it's just about this guy Oscar yeah. Schindler and then of course the the general or a commander yeah. played by Ralph yeah fine well, so, yeah so so you don't necessarily have to deal with kind of like even in Hotel Rwanda yeah. we actually have never understand what the full political drama is. It's just, it's yeah. just very clear what is happening and what the story yeah. is. No, it's for me, it's all, it's about boiling it down to, it's a distillation of boiling those emotions down to their, uh, their essence. And then presenting that in a universal way. Like, with, I mean, the way hotel Rwanda happened was at the time, um, I was trying to write a, a script about Liberia, Sierra Leone, and uh, boy soldiers and all of that time because it it was like being ignored. It was just when um, Charles Taylor was in charge of Liberia, and I thought this is the most outrageous, crazy thing, and nobody's doing anything about it. And so I I, I tried to write a script, and in the middle of that, my agent gave me a script by uh, Keir Pearson, this uh, guy who was an editor at. Um, I think he was at the New York Times at the time. Anyway, and in, in his script was the story of Paul Rousse Sabagina. You know, this guy who, hotel, an ordinary hotel manager who actually had like uh, Western, had been taught in Belgium and was, you know, sort of Euro sycophant and mm-hmm. suddenly was put in a position where he had to rescue his family and then that family expanded into saving this whole hotel and then the people who came in there. And I thought, this is a, this is a way to tell the Rwandan genocide, which is pretty incomprehensible. To it's anyone. totally incomprehensible, yeah. which is why, do you think if you had actually went into the explanation of the genocide, it would have taken away from the artistry yeah. of the movie? But there was... There were certain things I recognized from Northern Ireland. There was, you know, politicians using ordinary people's fear to manipulate them into a position of becoming extremist. And there, there were a couple of the things about the Rwandan genocide that, I mean, the, the Hutu uh, militia when I was turning it into a film, the Hutu militia had these incredibly colorful uh, outfits that they had. And, and and I started to see this division. Okay, the Hutu militia are in these crazy shirts. You know, the UN are in these blue, the blue helmets, the, the Hutu army are in the army uniforms, and the Tutsi uh, the refugees are basically in their... I had like color division. Here's the way to explain who's going on here. It's basically hate. You know, it's like fear. The Hutu majority population are in fear of the the Tutsi stealing their land. It was a common denominator that you see in the Middle East that I saw in Northern Ireland that you see in Asia. It's interesting because in the movie, it almost, 
you, you almost get a little confused, like, because everyone's hating everyone else. Yeah. So sometimes you don't know who's shooting at, at who. Right. But the core story, you know, the love story, the yeah. saving story, the fact that it, almost the Schindler's List-like story yeah. where he's using the hotel to, to save hundreds yeah. or even over a thousand refugees, yeah. that becomes the core thing. And yeah. so, again, it's this, I, you, you sort of like distill the suffering down to its essence of fear mm. and then use that to tell the story, yeah, to, to move the story along. I mean, it's how do you take the ordinary person and put them in that situation? And I'm always looking for the, uh, who, who is the audience in any movie? You know, what character is the uh, surrogate for the audience? Like in Hotel Rwanda, it was probably Sophie, the wife, rather than Paul. Because she's the, she's the suffering person. She's, you know, she's watching this. And in, in the name of the father, which I that, That's really interesting. Cause so, so just for people who haven't mm -hmm. even seen it, there's the guy who's the hero, played by yeah. Don Cheadle, who's almost this... He almost becomes larger than life once he realizes his mission yeah. of saving all these 1,200 refugees yeah. and all he stores yeah. in the... Yeah. Or he saves through the hotel. Mm -hmm. But then his wife... I never, I didn't think of it that way. She's the ordinary person yeah. experiencing this. She's the working class hero. Because yeah. Paul was always, he was initially selfish. He's motivated by his sort of, you know, Europhile. Kind he was of, worried about losing his job. Lo losing his job and he wants to look after the Westerners and the whites sell him out at the end of the mm -hmm. day and then he's stuck there and he's still bargaining with the, uh, the militia and so forth. It, the purity of the thing is Tatiana who's watching him and saying, no, this is what you're going to do. You can't, you know, you can't shuffle me off until some uh, evacuation. And and I wrote, In the Name of the Father, which I wrote with Jim Sheridan and he directed, which was about a guy called Jerry Conlon who was... Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, right. But in that, in that film, his father, played by Pete Postlethwaite, was the great working class hero. He was the father who came over to try to rescue his son and then trying to rescue his son was uh, imprisoned. And it was actually, <laughs> we often say this, it was basically the story of Pinocchio. You know, it's the, it's the bad child who's swallowed by the whale and the father goes into the belly of the whale and rescues him and the child becomes a good child and the father dies, which was, the the in the name of the father story but it was again it was Paul Pete Postlethwaite the actor who personified this nobility of the ordinary person who does something great and, so, and it's the same with Schindler if you look at the you know Schindler's List um, missing Jack Lemmon's great movie about the Chilean uh, about the Pinochet um, you know the Pinochet years and that uh, coup and what else the Killing Fields you know, there, there are, it's all the way to tell a story to a universal population is to get them engaged with a character who they can empathize with. And so, so it's not necessarily Oscar Schindler or, mm. you know, the, I, I don't even know how to pronounce the name, the Don Cheadle character yeah, in Hotel Rwanda. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the person that they're reflecting off of almost like in this case, in Hotel Rwanda, the mm. wife. Yeah, to some degree. And Oscar Schindler, 
I mean, the great thing about Oscar Schindler was he was such a rogue. He, you know, so he had his own vulnerability. As yeah. was John Don Cheadle well, kind of rose above that vulnerability. Well, at the same extent. time, he was to some extent not quite as with, with Oscar Schindler. You know, and it's one of my. I wish at the end of it, and not and it's a genius movie that Oscar had to remain quite the rogue that he was. You know, but. Um, but it's it's those it's those it's it has to be people that you know and recognize. They can't be like, you know, goddesses or great like huge um, uh, hero kind of plastic heroes or superheroes. Right. You, I, I'm I'm always looking for real characters who are people who have transcended the situation they're in. So, so I'm just Aaron trying to... Brockovich is a good count. You know, that's a classic Yeah, example. so that's a great one too. Yeah. So so it seems like now I'm, I'm piecing together and just mm. totally correct me where I'm wrong. There's kind of this global catastrophe, not global, but mm. there's a systemic kind of catastrophe that's happening someplace, mm. whether it's in Aaron Brockovich, the poisoning mm. uh, by a big corporation of some mm. Mm. land, or in Rwanda, there's this genocide mm. that nobody could possibly mm. understand. Like mm. it's an insane genocide. Mm. Um, so there, and you don't even have to explain all the details. We just have to, we just have to understand that fear exists and yeah. it's insane. Yeah. And then there's this character that somehow his arc or her arc is to transcend from ordinary person to almost larger than life person. And then there's kind of the stories around that, that, mm create human frailty and vulnerability and fear where we, the audience, can feel fear. So for instance, I've never been to Rwanda. I actually don't know the details at all of the genocide other than the fact that it's insane, nor do you explain it in the movie, but I can yet relate completely to the the fear. And I can also want to, I can aspire to be the Don Cheadle character. So I'm feeling both. So what's, I feel like there's some formula in there, not a direct formula, but something where it it lights up your creativity. It's not a formula. It's like recognizing that in any given situation, people can transcend their, their ordinary life and, and come to a place where they, they stand up for something and that we can, that gives us a hope as well. But that it's not ridiculous. It's not like they suddenly take off and fly and catch someone falling from a building. Right. It took Don yeah. Cheadle a while. It took him many, but many episodes. But it's, you could you could and should be Don Cheadle in that situation. You could and should be Schindler, Oscar Schindler. You know, you could and should be, uh, I forget the name of the guy in The Killing Free. These are people who we should aspire to be, not on any superhero level but just on a level of common decency. So that when you leave the cinema, you feel, I, that, that the big thing for me about cinema at the moment is, the only emotions that Hollywood is interested in sending the people out the door with is like, golly gee, wow, their eyes are spinning because they've seen so much explosions and their ears are breaking. Right. I'm Ant-Man. Yeah. I could shrink down I'm and not, save lives. I could give a shit. I want people to go out with like tears running down their face, their heart pumping, st- and feeling, this is my next door neighbor and I should be them. Those are like deeper emotions. We've but, given up on deeper emotions in the cinema. No, and, and I felt that in... 
hotel Rwanda, you feel mm. like you can, it's almost like this little injection you get. Mm. You feel like you could be better than yourself mm. by just aspiring to be the Don Cheadle character yeah. or the Oscar Schindler like character mm. who is sacrificing his own life yeah. to save all these thousands of people or 1200 yeah. people in, in the hotel Rwanda case. So, so, but again, I'm really just fascinated by the idea of transforming suffering into creativity. Like, what do you see in a, in a historical or political or current story that you could say, huh, I could do something with this and transform it into art? Well, I mean, it's not, it's overcoming suffering that I'm interested in rather than right. you know, tapping into it. And I think you can go, you can find I don't, I don't, I'm not like mining for stories, here's what to tell, but I want, you know, you look at situations in the world today and it's got, I mean, we, you know, we used to think the 20th century with like the horrors of the Holocaust and the genocide and all was like the worst century ever. And then we've moved into the 21st where we've actually reverted to the fucking, not just the 15th century, but the 8th century. Right. You know, we're back with the caliphate and, you know, the medieval crusades and, and suddenly you're like, wow. And there's refugees swarming across from, you know, the Middle East into Europe. And and you want to find what what's the motivation that can bring people to understand what's going on in Syria at the moment or what's going on in Mexico or what's going, I want to take audiences into that place. So it's, it's an interesting combination between journalism where you just mm. kind of dictate what the events are happening and storytelling where you mm. sort of find this core emotion that can be really explored mm. and this arc of character. And where would you say is the gap? Like, Clearly, I don't want to use the word selling out, even though I just said that phrase, but clearly you're not doing Jurassic Park 4. You know, that's not on your agenda for the future. And where's the gap between the storytelling you do and the Jurassic Parks, which do sell a billion dollars worth of tickets? Well, that's, I mean, that you have to accept that, you know, it's like accepting Rupert Murdoch and the New York Post and stuff. That's what's, you know and Fox News and reality television. It's what people want to escape their own, not their mundane lives. They just, as escapism, they do that. If, if you're dealing in deeper subjects, then it requires more time to be spent. It's not, I, I don't find any more nobility in what I'm doing over somebody, you know, doing the sixth episode of Star Wars or whatever. But, but but why? Because it seems like, again, I watch Hotel Rwanda and I feel nobility. I feel yeah. like I can be well, this Don Cheadle good, character. Yeah. yeah, but maybe that's what... I want to tap into other emotions that people need to feel. I think in entertainment at the minute, we're on a serious sugar rush. You know, if you go into the cinema... You're just going to get high on the flashbang of it all and that. And you've got to understand that, you know, fucking all bran and healthy foods are just as good and they can actually taste as good. Or you can leave the cinema with a different feeling. Because I, I do remember, even when I was a kid growing up, you know, my mom used to take me to these, uh, what was her name? 
the, there were these old sort of classic weepy, weepy uh, movies that they'd make. But then, and in the sixty and the seventies and the eighties, the great films were tapping into deeper, different emotions. You know, like like Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunter and the, you know the great political movies of the time, Costa Gravis and. You came out with a different emotion from the cinema than you get now. The only time you get those emotions is between like October and January when the Oscars are right now. Suddenly you get hit up with like the important movies. But I think it's very satisfying to come away from a movie where you feel you've been moved in a way that you're just not being entertained, you know? So so let's say I'm an aspiring young filmmaker and I'd like Mm -hmm. to do... What, what you've done in fashion, that sort of career you've done without necessarily going to Hollywood and signing up for Ant-Man 4 mm. or whatever. What, sh- what should I be looking for in terms of learning or learning how to write or learning how to, uh, you know, what process should I start thinking about? I don't know. I mean, I think if you look at the, you know, if you take like Kari Fukunawa who just did Beast of No Nation, and he did True Detective, and True Detective, okay, yeah. and he wrote every single word yeah. of True Detective. But before that, very unusual for a TV series. You know, he did Sinombre, and 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 he did a short film that was the basis of that. He's a classic example of going and finding something. Like his short film was basically about uh, Mexican illegals trying to get into the United States, and those emotion transmitting emotion. I mean, we're in the business of communication, right? That's that all of us. This is what this is about. We're communicating with each other. Film is about communication. If you can communicate emotion in its rawest level, then that's how you're going to be successful. And then, so stupid question again, how do you think about, because there's, there's sort of, as you said before, with Sugar Rush, there are very sugary ways to communicate emotion, and then there are very real ways to communicate emotion. And if, it, you know, you obviously weren't at the Rwanda genocide, but you related it to your experiences yeah. in Ireland, what's kind of a method of sort of feeling that emotion in the inside and putting it out on the paper in a real way that's not Well, saccharine? you know, I'm not, look, I think a lot of it is, some of it's personal experience that you you have to do the work. You have to talk to people and feel that and do the research and feel that viscerally to actually, you can't, you can't go to UCLA film school and know how people feel in Aleppo. You know, you can't do that. It doesn't transmit. You can go to UCLA film school and know how people feel on fucking star X, Y, Z. You know, that's okay. <laughs> they, 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 that's where I normally live. Well, but, yeah. but that's, yeah, that's an invention. You know, what real life suffering and, and the little nuances of what take place in that is, is it, that's personal experience. And you've got to get out and work with that. Um, and then, for, like, you know, when we were doing Hotel Rwanda, and even in this, then the promise, the uh, the film I'm doing at the moment, I had I had a sort of mantra or a catchword, and it's Peoria. And the thing is, if they don't get it in Peoria, Illinois, you fail, right? You have to be able to 
crystallize and turn that drama into something that communicates not just in Peoria, but in Belfast and in Beirut and in Bangkok in some way to universalize that. And that that's about finding those, you know, universal moments of suffering and emotion and joy. Well, you, you mentioned yeah. joy and it brings me, yeah. um, it, it made me think when I was watching Hotel Rwanda, yeah. there's these intense, horrible moments. Like he, you know, I'm not giving yeah. any spoilers, but obviously yeah. he's, there's well, dead bodies yeah. everywhere. Yeah. It's 12 years old, no so spoilers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no need for spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie, yeah. you suck, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in the middle of that, though, the Don Cheadle character is still laughing and joking yeah. with his wife. They're trying to find those moments of, of joy, which which yeah. I thought was very real, too. Like, it, you're not yeah. just kind of trying to beat this message. It's not about the message. Yeah. It's about the human experience. Yeah, no, you've all... I mean, I, there, there's a sort of structure to it as well. You can't always be... If you're, I, I mean, I did one movie that was unrelentingly bleak um, called Re, uh, Reservation Road. Which was about funniest movie ever. Yeah. No, no, just kidding. Yeah. Which we all call the dead child in the road movie, you know. But and it it's it, it um and I learned that you've got to even within the worst horror, there's moments of joy that people have or humor or laughter or whatever. You've got to the audience needs a relief valve, mm. you know. They just and. Uh, and it's not that they're even planted. It's just I remember even from you. I mean, you look back. I look back on Belfast now, and when I grew up, and I remember the funny, crazy, stupid stuff along with it, the horrific stuff. You know, so so yeah. you did a, a short movie, The Shore, yeah. which won an Academy Award about yeah. your experiences in Belfast to yeah. some extent, yeah. and so. Do you ever see yourself again returning to that? Yeah, I'm going to try and do a feature film out of the shore. The great thing about the shore was it was during, um, I'd just written Inside Man 2 for Spike. We were trying to, because I rewrote, uh, or was the second writer on Inside Man was Spike, and, and then he wanted to do Inside Man 2, and then I did a version of that, and there was some other shit going on in Hollywood, and I could... It was one of those constantly going into like big story meetings with 15 people saying, you know, what if he turned into like a wasp and flew out the window? <laughs> I'm sitting there trying to smile. Well, what do you do in that situation? Like, so, so presumably they're pulling you in because you're going to be able to take this comic book like scenario and get the raw emotion out of it is yeah. my guess is why they're bringing yeah, they're you in. in for some form exactly and so and what do you do in that case okay i'm the wasp and i'm gonna like I, shrink I down and sting people I, you know i go outside and stop myself in the neck <laughs> <laughs> but do you say like oh he had a child who died like in no. the past and he has a flashback about that or like what do you well, was what's the point, formula there was one point somebody said when we were doing it in the name of the father well what would happen if like his father escaped or something like that. And I'm like, well, you know, this is a real story. He died in prison, so he can't really... <laughs> there's, a, there's a detachment in Hollywood of like, what if this happened, you know? And, and I'm not the best one to tell these horrific, like, story by comedic, uh, you know, uh, stories, because there's... you you The thing about going to... <laughs> 
going to these story meetings in Hollywood is you come in and there's 12 people from the studio and they're all clever. All geniuses. They're all geniuses, <laughs> but they are. They're all very clever. But, you know, the head of the studio or the deputy is there. And then the, 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 some, the, the next one down, and then you've got 10 people who work for them. And they all desperately feel as though if they don't say something, they're, they're, they have no contribution to make or they're not. And the best thing they could actually do is like shut the fuck up and say nothing, you know, and let the person. But they all come in with ideas. They have to say something. Yeah. I mean, there was one rewrite I did of a, uh, a film where with a big movie star and I went to these meetings and I ended up getting 70 pages of notes and I said then why don't you just fucking shoot the notes and save yourselves all the money for paying for me you know <laughs> you know a, a normal script's 110 pages and they'd give me 70 pages of notes on the script but um, and what did you add to that script just just like I'm just trying to understand like what do you bring to those big Hollywood-esque meetings what did I bring to it? <laughs> I bring their hope that you'll fix something that's bad. You're brought in to fix, you know, you're usually brought in as the second writer to fix something that's not working. Well, what might not be working? That, that usually the whole fucking story. <laughs> <laughs> but like, is there like, was it too much like they focused on like plot without human emotion or like what happens, what goes off the rail? They, well, they start with a concept. They have a concept rather than an intrinsic story that comes out of something, you know, um, that comes out of something that's, that's actually exists in reality or, or that, that has a, a personal vision of someone who's invented it. They, they come up with the concept and, and then they start developing that concept and everyone, you have six people who are uh, in the studio and they each have different ideas about that concept. And then they bring in a writer and they articulate that concept. And then he has his spin on the concept, but it doesn't actually match theirs. I see it's, it's, you, you need, you know, you write books, right? You actually need uh, a concept that's held together by one person who has a vision. Once you start chiseling away at that, then you start uh, diminishing the concept itself. So you brought in to kind of like say, look, okay, let's take a step back and fill in an underlying. Yeah, this vision. doesn't work. Can you do this? Can you do that? Mm -hmm. And it's usually a lot of money. And you know, you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll give that a try. And a lot of time, it, it does work because it's sort of journeyman work stuff. You know, it's like building blocks of a story and how this works. And um, but often then your idea doesn't match with what the people around the table are. It's not, for me, look, that works a lot of time in Hollywood. I, I'm just a guy who wants to tell a particular story with particular emotions, and I need to be in control of that. And I shouldn't wander into this, like, great area of let's fix things here like this and that. You know, it's sort of, for me, you've got to be so invested in the story that you take it from start to finish. And if something within it doesn't work dramatically, then 
because you're invested in it, you know how to fix, you know how to join. Right, you're like part of the whole story, every moment of it. Yeah, I can't deal with the, let's, you know, let's make this all up collectively, you know? So, so... Again, to the aspiring young filmmaker, you've already mentioned several movies that have inspired you and motivated you. What are some books they could read well, to learn? I mean, or? For me, the aspiring young filmmaker today has everything at their, you know, at their disposal. I, it was always for me that the, the, the intro was to go to a theater, the Irish Art Centre, as it, it so happened with Jim Sheridan, because... You immediately become involved with actors, set designer, director, producer, like local theater. Get involved in something practical. Don't be sending a script to Hollywood. It's going to be toilet paper. Not even that. It's just going to be recycled. They're not even going to wipe their ass with it. You know? Just try to get involved yourself. And and because of the way we work today, the internet, you know, the D5 camera, Garage band, you can do your own movie. You you know, write a script, write something, write a short film, shoot it, see how it goes. If you have a concept and you think that can make it fly, then you've got your own distribution network. You've got your everything's at your disposal. You don't have to go to Hollywood. In fact, if you avoid that, there you're far better off. You know. So that's my advice to anyone who's aspiring to be a writer. Um, director, whatever, is to, like, do it yourself. Find out, uh, join a local theater or find out a group of people who you can work with and put something together that you think is unique. And, if it, you know, on the internet, on the web, if it ain't unique, you're going to fucking know about it very quickly, you know? that's And 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 so there's the, the, the conventional way of bursting into Hollywood I think it's gone completely now. You know, that's like, let's send a script and hope someone reads it. And Nobody reads scripts that are sent. You know, forget about it. You know, just, you know. Well, look, Terry George, Hotel Rwanda. We're going to have you back on again with the, we, had, we did one, we talked about one genocide. We're going to have you on again with the next genocide in a few months. Yeah, Thanks yeah. so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for I appreciate it. It was super inspirational. Yeah. And thank you very much. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today.